Well, welcome everybody to Beyond the Crucible, the podcast that's all about living and leading with significance. I'm your co-host, Gary Schneeberger, uh, the Communications Director for Crucible Leadership. And the focus of our podcast, really the purpose of it, is to visit crucible experiences, those events that occur in our lives that could be failures, things that we're involved in that maybe we cause to some extent. And they can be tragedies and traumas and setbacks that just happen to us in day-to-day life. What makes them all kind of combined together is that they are life-changing and The purpose that we talk about them is that they'll be life-changing in positive ways, that they will become the fuel that will help us all live a life of significance. And our guide on this journey, as always, is the founder of Crucible Leadership and the host of Beyond the Crucible, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, it's great to be here. We're going to have a good show today, I think. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Gary. And it's wonderful to welcome Margie Worrell. She is a uh, fellow Australian, so you will uh, notice that. Um, I've unfortunately lived in the U.S. Uh, a long time, so uh, mine has got toned down a bit, unfortunately. But um, uh, we do speak the same language. So that is uh, that <laughs> is fun. And uh, so um, just by way of introduction, Maggie and I have actually known each other for a while, maybe about 10 years. I think we met on a coaching conference in Washington, D.C. Um, a while ago and uh, you know, noticed that uh, we might be from the same country. So we struck up a friendship and Maggie's been uh, so supportive and helpful, had me on her uh, wonderful podcast, Live Brave, and a column she wrote for Forbes. And so... Uh, we've known each other for a while, and it's just uh, wonderful, Margie, to have you on uh, on the podcast. Well, I am just delighted to be here with you, Warwick, and I'm so delighted you've launched a podcast too. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And for listeners, just so you know, in addition to being Warwick's friend and professional connection, uh, this is what Margie has also done, and I think we'll all agree that she is living a life of significance. But here's her biography. Margie Worrell has walked the path of courage many times since growing up, the big sister of seven on a small dairy farm in rural Victoria, Australia. From backpacking solo around the world in her early 20s to starting a business with four young children in a new country, Margie's gained valuable insights about defying self-doubt, building resilience, and embracing life's challenges with faith instead of fear. The titles of her previous best-selling books, Find Your Courage, Stop Playing Safe, Train the Brave, and Make Your Mark, reflect her passion for emboldening people to realize their potential and lead braver lives. A member of the advisory board of Forbes School of Business and Technology, honoree of the Women's Economic Forum and a sought-after international speaker, Margie draws on her global experiences, background in psychology, business, and coaching to speak and facilitate leadership programs and diverse, with diverse organizations. They include NASA, Salesforce, Morgan Stanley, SAP, Marriott, United Health, Mars, Johnson & Johnson, MetLife, Berkshire Hathaway, and Google. Margie's ability to distill complex issues into accessible insights has also made her a sought-after media commentator on outlets such as The Today Show, CNN, CNBC, Fox and & Friends, and Bloomberg. 
Her Courage Works column with Forbes has been read by millions. In her spare time, does not sound like she has much spare time, but it says right here in the bio, in her spare time, Margie enjoys adventure travel and long hikes in beautiful places. Most recently, she summited Mount Kilimanjaro with her husband, Andrew, and their four teenage children. I'm looking forward to being part of this conversation as you guys have a chat. Well, Maggie, again, so great to have you. And um, we'll obviously talk a lot about what you're doing now. Love the new book, uh, You've Got This, which I've read uh, about half of and so exciting. I love all the work you do on Courage. But I'd uh, like to start with, um, by way of sort of highlighting that, is just uh, some of your crucible experiences, because at least from my perspective, uh, crucible experiences help mold who we are and help give us a passion for helping others, or at least it can do. And mm. um, so I'd just love to hear a bit more about your story and crucible experiences before we get to all the fantastic work you do on Courage. Yeah, thank you, Warwick. You know, I sometimes struggle to nail it down to one experience because <laughs> I feel like I've had quite a few. <laughs> and each, uh, each has shaped me in different ways. And it's funny when I look back and think what was maybe one of the earlier tough experiences in my, before I really hit out into the, got at the gates in my adult life. And actually, I was probably dealing with an eating disorder, to be honest, in my teens and 20s. And something people sometimes have a lot of shame around and don't like to talk around a lot. But I think that the journey for me, the inward journey of coming out the other side of that, I had bulimia for 13 years from being about 13 years of age. And while I was quite high functioning, I people, it wasn't that I was went through college and did well and everything else. But for me, the journey of really looking inwardly and going, what's underneath all of this was actually quite a crucible experience. And I actually think I came out the other side of that through actually a 12-step program, believe it or not, and really a journey of faith too. Like, you know, God, I got to get your help on this. I'm struggling to do this alone. So I think that also took me into the readings and learning about why we humans do what we do and why we sometimes do the very things that we don't want it, we know aren't serving us. Why do we and sometimes fail to do the things that will serve us? And so that took me on a, on a new, down a new pathway in many ways that ultimately ended up shaping a, a whole professional pathway as well. Yeah. And then, of course, as you know, in Papua New Guinea, <laughs> I ended up, you know, in an armed robbery, and, um, which was pretty violent. And then 20 weeks pregnant, finding out 10 days later that I'd lost my first child. That was obviously a much more dramatic, crucible experience. Yeah. I mean, it's everybody's journey is different. I mean, one of the things... Um, it's interesting is you have an interesting story kind of growing up in, was it Western Victoria in, uh, oh, Southeast it, actually. Sorry. <laughs> Southeast. Well, <laughs> <or> close. <laughs> at, least, at least I didn't say Northwest, but, uh, anyway, on a dairy farm. And, um, I think one of the things you write about in your books, a bit about, and you've got this is that maybe there were expectations and, um, you know, traditional role models from, you know, yeah. mother and grandmother. And um, so, I don't know, you've had a number of experiences that you've had to try to discern who am I? You go through something yeah. like bulimia or armed robbery or losing a child. It, it all tends to make you introspective. So it may not be a traditional crucible experience, but I have a feeling that part of the way you grew up is shaped or it led you to make certain decisions. It's like, well, who am I? Do I want to follow this traditional role or 
you know. Yeah, and to that point, yeah, my um, well, my father milked cows for 50 years. Um, you know, he dropped out of school at 15, 16. I'd say he probably had dyslexia or a learning challenge that he never got support with. And so he just milked, you know, did very menial sort of work in many ways for his whole working life. And my mum, she actually left school at 16 to become a nun um, and joined the convent for nine years and was nearly making her final vows for anyone who is familiar with Catholicism, nearly making her final vows and decided to leave and uh, then met my father not long after and had seven children. And I'm actually Margaret Mary, so very Catholic. But I share that because, you know, my parents were very much filled traditional roles. And for me growing up, you know, my dad used to say, oh, I see you being a Sister Margaret Mary one day. Um, <laughs> But I, no one in my family had ever gone to university. That was sort of seen in my parents' world. Well, only really smart people, like really smart people would go to university. Like it just wasn't something that people did was to go to university. And so even to say, well, actually, I really want to go to university. My older brother didn't and until much later. And, and so my parents' actually expectations was probably quite low. Like if I'd left school at 16 and trained as a hairdresser or worked in a local shop, I don't think they'd have really thought much about it, to be honest with you. So it's interesting is sort of what it is having parent expectations. I knew that they thought I was wonderful, but I just think they didn't have very big ambitions for me because they, they didn't see a world, their whole world context themselves was very small. And so, so yeah, that definitely shaped me. And for me over the years, having to, the little voice in my head, how many times that it's, it's whispered, who do you think you are to do that? You know, who do you think you are, you know, at 18 to go to, to move to a foreign city and go to university or to go traveling or, and I remember thinking about writing my first book after I'd started down this new pathway of coaching and someone, a few people said, oh, you should write a book. And the voice in my head was, oh, who do I think I am to write a book? I mean, I'm just this not overly well-educated girl from rural Australia and uh, didn't ever study literature. I don't know where the apostrophes go. I went to a very small <laughs> school. The only kid in my grade, my entire elementary school years. So, yeah, so I was just that little voice of who am I to do that is one that honestly in so much of my work and including my latest book is like really in the words of Marianne Williamson, who are you not to right. do that? Right. Who are you not to play big, you know, and, and playing small doesn't serve the world, but that's been a real act of courage on my part. No, absolutely. So, I mean, some for some of us, like me, you know, the expectations were pretty high, you know, heir to a huge Fairfax media dynasty and, you know, the benchmark was, you know, through, through the roof, you know, they expected me to be one of the great Fairfaxes and I don't yeah. know do something incredible for the nation of Australia, or that was sort of the benchmark. But did, was it, I don't know if it's good or bad. It almost feels like the benchmark was set kind of low. It's like, do you feel like, hey, mom, dad, you could have had a, a little bit higher expectations, or maybe you found it freeing. I don't know. It's sort of you the other end of the funny. spectrum. And I've got to chime in here, Warwick. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I realized who you were once we'd met, we'd had lunch together that day, right. and I was like, oh, you're Australian. We like had this lunch, and, and you said, oh, my family's in media. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, whatever. You know, maybe you're, I just, I just, and then you gave me your card, and I got home that day, and I got it out, and I looked at your last name. I'm yeah. like, oh, my gosh. That's Warwick Fairfax. I was actually stunned, astonished, stunned, because 
we'd had such a lovely time and everything. I grew up knowing your name. I mean, mm. I grew up knowing your family name and certainly in my late teens and 20s when your face was plastered all over yeah. Australia's newspapers and Absolutely. all through the media. Your name was, you know, you couldn't turn on the TV at night and your name would be on the television for a period right. there. <laughs> and our worlds, our social worlds were like literally opposite. I mean, I was sort of like from a tiny little rural, like think for any Americans listening, I'm like from rural Mississippi, West Virginia or somewhere. <laughs> and you are like, you know, the Murdoch or the, you know, right. you're, you're the, exactly. just been so big. And I was like, oh my God, I just met like our, that our lives, that our paths even crossed. <laughs> Right. And so, yes, we grew up with different expectations. <laughs> and there's something that's interesting that you both said that does relate, I think, to crucible experiences. And I think our listeners can understand this. Margie, you talked about how you've heard or you heard that voice in your head say, who are you to do X, Y or Z? And Warwick, you had, I don't know if it was a voice in your head, but it was a voice on the television saying you did this wrong. For listeners that have those voices in their heads telling them you can't do this or telling them you should do that instead of this, what's your advice to them to ensure that those voices don't become crucible experiences in and of themselves? Well, I would say, and what I actually have been writing about this in my new book that's coming out next year is you've got to challenge those voices in your head mm -hmm. and do not treat the voices in your head as though they're the truth. I believe they are really coming from that place of fear, which is wired into all of us to keep us safe, to protect us from failure and humiliation and rejection and being exposed as unworthy, which I think a lot of people have a deep-seated fear of being exposed, found out as not good enough in some way. And I think it really requires really that mindfulness muscle of the, what this voice in my head, these self-doubts, that inner critic, is what they're saying isn't the truth. It's not the truth. Don't buy into this as the truth. And to challenge that and to turn it on its head instead of who am I to do this? Yeah, who am I not to do this? Or, mm -hmm. you know, well, you, what if you fail? What would people say? It's like, what would open up for me if I didn't believe this, if I actually bought into the opposite of this? And having the courage to defy that voice, I think is what is so crucial and to avoiding a crucible experience in and of itself of living our lives and not living the lives of significance we have it within us to live because we've let that voice sit in the driver's seat of our life, dictate our decisions, dictate our actions and keep us living a much smaller life than honors us or serves the world. It may be in your book, I seem to recall the phrase, people living lies of quiet desperation. Is, is that yeah, in your, I don't know, yeah. I guess when I read it there, maybe I'm, Thinking of Look, I, somewhere I, I else. Would have, that's a Thoreau line, and, <laughs> okay. uh, no, I believe. And so I think I paraphrased him. And yeah, I said, yeah, just yeah. paraphrasing Thoreau, you know, yeah. some of us end up living our lives of quiet desperation. And, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt has a wonderful quote. Um, and she said, you know, most people tiptoe through life only mm. to make it safely to death. And as they tiptoe, they're living lives of quiet desperation because they're going to the grave right. with the soul still in them. And I mean, what's amazing to me is you grew up in a just this quiet life. It's not like you had role models of your parents who were, you know, let's just bet it all. Let's take big risks. I mean, it was just, you know, so you've taken a very different path than you grew up in, in one sense. And, yeah, you know, everybody makes different choices, not to say that other people's choices or a parents' choices were wrong choices. I mean, everybody has to live their own lives. But 
what made you live a life of courage just ever since you grew up going to college in Melbourne and you just took a very different path your whole life? Yeah, I have. You know, and I and my mum and dad, I'm so blessed they're still alive, 80 and 84, and still living in the little rural area I grew up, and I'm, I'm going to have Christmas with them, which will be beautiful. But one thing that I think, which is a deep value that's guided me a lot, is that that Christian value, actually. But it's to he who much is given, much is expected. Now, right. you could say I wasn't given much. I mean, we never had any money, but you, I was given gifts, not that I even knew what my gifts were, but I still, but also this sense of mum and dad always donated the tiny little bits of money they had. They always donate heavily, whether it's to the church or some some charity or helping people in parts of the world that are far less privileged than even I was. And so this this idea that our, we should, you know, live our lives for others and do something good with our life that's, that helps other people. And so that's been guiding for me. You know, how do I do something that, I get a sense of purpose from that helps other people. And it's interesting. Like I have a sister who's a doctor. I have a sister who's a physio who's now with World Health Organization. You know, we, a lot of us have actually done things that have, we've felt are in contributing to the world in some way. So I think that has been definitely a guiding force for me, not to be self-centered. It's interesting. It almost seems like rather than professionally how they lived their life, it's the values that your parents lived that perhaps most influenced you? Yeah, my, very much part of their community. My dad would always do lots of favors for everyone, you know, and if they couldn't afford it, that's fine, don't pay me. Like that's sort of who he is. So I think that um, that definitely had an impact on me. And, you know, I guess I, we all have different personalities too, Warwick, and I have a, an adventurous spirit. I love experiencing new places. I think I knew that I'd probably get bored easily, bored if I stayed where I'd grown up. And just be, by virtue of part of my personality, I love, I've enjoyed living and experiencing a lot more of the world than I would have had I not left. And I go back there and I love going back there. To, it's a very beautiful little place for anyone called Nungurna, where I grew up, which doesn't <laughs> even have a shop. And uh, it still only has a, like, actually, the school's doubled in size. It used to be one room and now it's two. And I love going back there, but I think I just, I knew that there was a whole lot of world out there that I was feeling called to go and live in and explore and experience and be part of that I wasn't going to have that if I'd stayed in there. And, and I felt that again and again over my life. But, you know, I think about my second career, my first one, I studied business and I worked in marketing and then I decided that just wasn't feeding me and went right. back to psychology <laughs> and then coaching, etc. Yeah. But I over my this second career where I'm speaking and writing and coaching and everything, has I love seeing the impact that using the tools that we learn can have on the lives of other people. Mm. That, like, lights me up. It, you know, it, it's soul-satisfyingly rewarding. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. I almost feel like, obviously, you have a business and, you know, uh, and what have you, but... I almost feel like it's more of a maybe a mission that you're not doing this to build some empire. You're doing this to help people and in particular women who often, I think, as you've written, maybe uh, don't always have, you know, sell themselves short, maybe don't have the courage, don't always stand up for themselves. It almost feels like you, yeah, the word mission just comes to mind that, yeah. you know. Yeah, you're right. And absolutely. I think that you're correct. 
And it's funny, even this latest book I've written, which isn't just for women and, and a lot of this, uh, while I do a lot with women, I do a lot, you know, in general audiences and speaking at a lot of big conferences for just big companies with often 70% men sometimes. So, but I will say that even my latest book, it's called You've Got This and it's the power of trusting ourselves. And I think about how, well, strategically, I probably should have written a leadership book, you know, that would lead to higher speaking fees and I probably should have a lot of people working under me and then be getting leveraging my business for a lot more passive income like all of these things I'm like oh I know I should from a profit maximization or if I'm looking at it through a commercial lens there's a whole lot of things I probably should have been doing that I haven't been but then I go does that light me up do I want to do that I'm like no it's not well, lighting me up I'm sure people like with a lot of folks who have a coaching philosophy is like you can uh, have a whole uh train the brave coaching uh, program in which you would license people as yes. Margie Worrell licensed. I mean, I'm sure uh, people have suggested that. And, yep. that and maybe that would work. It probably would. But do you want to have a whole, you know, a thousand uh, people trained in the certification program? And is that really yeah. what you want to do? It's not wrong, but well, it may not be what you, know, you want to and do. And you know what? It's funny. I was talking to someone about this yesterday who said that, oh, I could be doing that. And I said, you know, maybe I, I'm an empty nester in 12 months time. And maybe once I'm an empty nester, I'll go, you know what? I have capacity for things that I haven't had for 22 years as a mom, you know, where I really want to be around the kids more. But yeah, up until now, I've when I've thought about that, it just hasn't lit me up so who knows what the future holds maybe that will be in the future but it certainly just hasn't been what i felt called to do up until now but, i mean i think this is important for the listeners to understand i mean there's a few themes here which is your motivation isn't about building an empire or money it's about using the gifts and the passion that you have to help other people to help them not lead quiet lives of desperation to live their lives to the fullest so that on their deathbed they can say you know what I made mistakes, but I gave it my all and I lived as full a life as I could possibly live, right? Mm -hmm. And that yeah. would be, and yeah, I mean, we grew up obviously very differently, but that sense, as I've mentioned in other podcasts, that sense of altruism, you know, Fairfax Media was founded by a person of great faith. He, yes, he built a huge empire, but he wanted to really have a, a newspaper that would be uh, serve the colony as then was of Australia and succeeding generations, there was a sense of altruism. I remember, yeah. I think my grandmother is reputed to have said, when you have wealth and blessings like this, it's almost like you get, um, you know, you've got dessert, but you have this obligation to serve other people. So that yeah. sense of serving others, it was, that was certainly ingrained in, in my family and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think your whole life you've been about helping other people is just hardwired in you, which I think is, to me, if you want to live a life of significance, a life of that's filled with joy, joy doesn't come from building an empire. It comes from using your gifts to serve others. And I would yeah. have thought you clearly live a life of significance. I would have thought you'd probably live a fairly joyful life if, in, in the holistic sense of the word, if that yeah, makes sense. I I'd like to think I have joyful moments. I have plenty where I'm like, ah, as well. But I mean, in terms of the overall direction of what you're doing with your life, you know, it's not like you say, oh, why am I doing this? Oh, I should have just. No. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's such a tragedy when people do spend such a big part of their adult lives doing something that doesn't 
that just brings them no joy. I right. mean, there's, you know, I don't think it's realistic that all of us are feeling joyful every moment of every day. But for some people, it's like, oh, their work is just this dread. And I'm like, that's a really sad state to be right. in. I want to grab something yeah. Warwick said a few minutes back when he pointed out that really the focus of a lot of your work, Margie, is women. And when I look back at, uh, we have all guests fill out a sheet that sort of identifies their crucible moments. And you talked about your crucible experiences. And it's interesting to me as I read the first couple of those, that they are those that perhaps are most associated with women. Dealing with bulimia in your teens and 20s. Men have bulimia as well, but I think we hear more about it with women. An armed robbery in Papua New Guinea, everybody's susceptible to that, but I think the bad guys will target women perhaps more than they'll target men. And then obviously losing your first child at 20 weeks being pregnant. Do you think those crucible experiences the fact that you were a woman who went through those things, is that maybe why you drifted in some way to really focusing your altruism and your wanting to help people to women? Look, I um, partly yes, but not entirely. I think I do a lot with women because as a woman and having now worked with thousands of women around the world and, and thousands of men too, however, my experience is women are much more likely to underestimate themselves and mm. doubt themselves and hold themselves back from putting themselves forward for things than men. And I know so much of that. I mean, our biology is, is slightly different, but how we're socialized is different, you know. And while we, we're in a stage now, obviously, the world's changing and, and I think girls today are growing up in a different environment that I grew up in. But that said, I think those those social norms and the penalty that we pay when we break out of the norms and the expectations on women and we want to be caregivers and we want to and then we get we hit this thing when we have a try and have a career and we go oh it's all too hard and and I get that you know I left the corporate space too but I so often see women who really struggle with self-belief and self and worthiness and I actually ran a program in Singapore yesterday with Oracle um, 300 women from across Asia Pacific and, you know, as I went around and I was talking to people, how many of those women kind of go, oh, you know, I don't know that I'm ready for this bigger role. And um, I find that less so in men who would go, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for a bigger leadership role. They'd be more likely to go, yeah, bring it on. In fact, <laughs> I was ready a year ago. So, you know, just, just these patterns and these tendencies. But that said, I will say, Gary, I think all of us can be held back by fear in different shapes and forms. And I think sometimes for men, it can show up differently too. And I, and Warwick, as you having read my book that's coming out, you know, I have a chapter in there for men because I think men can struggle with revealing their vulnerability. And sometimes where women have shame triggers around our bodies and how mm -hmm. we look, men, it can be around appearing weak and not being strong right. and pressure they feel. And no. so I think that Fear can show up in different ways. Yeah, I think that's very astute. I mean, I think I'm sure you're right. And from women's perspective, if a woman says, hey, I think I deserve a raise, it's like, oh, you're being kind of pushy. Whereas if a man yeah. says that, it's like, hey, good for you. You're being bold. It's yeah. like, yeah. and so yeah. how do you you know, navigate that? I'm sure is challenging in a way that gets the job done without at no point pushing a trigger that gets the answer no. So how do you do it in a way that gets the answer yes, which is probably a hub and conversation. But for men, 
you know, admitting that you fail, admitting that you don't have the answers, admitting that you're clueless is a taboo. And so you've got these male managers that pretend that they know everything and they and that they have all the answers when they're scared puppy dogs. I mean, that's yeah. sort of the reality. I mean, you've obviously married. You've got, you know, at least I think how many sons do you have? I guess um, three. three. Three sons. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a lot of experience. Uh, so there are social norms for each, but. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, courage because I, I love your passion for that. Of just it's mm-hmm. it's easy to say be brave, but it's we're all <laughs> that's how to do it. <laughs> we're, we're all scared or just um, so many questions. It's such a broad subject. I know for me, it's knowing there are some areas where I don't have to be brave in everything. Like you know, I'm not. And this I don't know if this is on point or not, but it just occurred to me. Um, I'm a reflective advisor type. I grew up in an intellectual family, but I'm not particularly athletic. And so the stereotype for boys is you got to be athletic. Well, I'm kind of not. You got to be competitive. Well, I'm kind of not. I don't really want to pulverize the next guy to the ground. I, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't turn me on. I mean, I'd rather have a conversation than, you know, stick their head in the mud. It just doesn't really do it for me. And so, you know, playing a round of golf and betting or being competitive, it's the last thing I want to do. And so I've had to come to terms with it's okay not to be brave in the sense of playing a sport that I don't enjoy and being competitive. I mean, it's just, what's the point? Now, being brave in terms of crucible leadership, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just part of it's getting, uh, avoiding stereotypes. And part of it is just, you know, picking your battles, Things that are maybe difficult, it's okay not to take on things you don't want to do just because. Like, I'm going to do bungee jumping just because it scares me. Okay, great. But if you don't want to do it, that's okay, right? Yeah. Well, I, I have something to say on that. And that is actually when the expectation is that you should be doing sport and whatever, then actually that can be an act of courage to go, I don't want to do this and risk the disapproval of those around you. Like, really, son, you know, I always thought you'd become a star footballer like me, you know, like that's an act of courage. And so being who we really are and true to ourselves, that is courageous in itself. And a question I often ask people when we talk about being brave and bold and taking a risk or whatever is, for the sake of what are you willing to do this? Or do you want to do this? You need to do this. And for the sake of bungee jumping, for instance, like, Wow, because it really excites me and I think it'd be so much fun. Great, go out there and do it. Well, for the sake of like, I don't know, like I, like, there's got to be a compelling reason. There's got to be a big why. Why would you do that? And things that I did in my 20s that were brave, I don't want to do them. I, I mean, I jumped out of a plane. I mean, I don't want to do it anymore. It just doesn't interest me. But at the time, it was exciting when I was 19, 20 years old or whatever to do one jump. And then I decided that it was enough. But I do think, <laughs> For instance, building a business. If you want to build a business because that really calls to you and lights you up, fantastic, because I really want to run a multi-million dollar empire. Great. Be brave and bold. I don't really want to do that. So why would I do, you know, why would I take those risks? It's just yeah, not calling. I love that phrase you said, be brave for the sake of what? At least from my perspective, it's, and I think we both share this, is in some sense, helping other people, making the world a better place. I mean, not everybody defines their, you know, for the sake of what that way, but I think probably you and I do. Um, yeah. Whatever's me. And I think this is where we're all different, right? Um, 
some people want to sail a boat around the world and some people want to create beautiful art and some people want to build a big business and that lights them up and they want to come up with a better way of people communicating or traveling or whatever it is and that uses their skills. They're entrepreneurial. They love to create. They love to innovate. They love to or whatever. And I think you think of Warren Buffett just loved, he loved looking at the, you know, the, the spreadsheets and the P&L statements. He loved examining the books and going, how can I make money out of this? He's gifted at that. He loved making the money. Didn't really know what to do with it at all when he got it, so he's given it away. <laughs> Great. But that's what he loved to do and he was good at it. I'm not actually that good at that, you know. So, so some people have gifts that allow them to make a lot of money and other people's gifts maybe don't make them so much money. But I think the point is, is what is meaningful to you? And what's meaningful for you and what you're doing with Crucible Leadership has some similarities with what's meaningful for me, but I have also bring different strengths to bear and different life experiences. So what I'm doing is going to be different than what you're doing or what the other 10,000 coaches are doing. And what I like about what you're talking about is, you know, it's got to be meaningful to you, but I think you said just a minute ago, it's got to be linked to how you're wired. I mean, there's an intersection, isn't there, between being brave, feeling like it lights you up, but also feeling like it's an area that you have some gifting and ex- passion, experience. Does that make sense? That there's a linkage there? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, to your point on, you know, I have um, three sons and my youngest son absolutely loves football, rugby, in the mud, <laughs> put her face in the dirt. Like, he, and he's, like he's good at it and he loves right. it. Right. My third child, my son, Ben, not his thing at all, like you. Like, why? I just... <laughs> couldn't think of anything much worse right. and i'd like to think as a parent i'm like that's great both exactly like, they're both fine that, yeah. that's totally fine the world doesn't need everyone wanting to put people's face in the mud <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know but we also need a world where not everyone is you know just sitting back and writing poetry we need people to be out there blazing trails and i remember richard branson a few years ago i got invited to interview him on necker island down in um, british virgin islands and spending three days with him and you know he's a guy who obviously loves making things better creating building businesses making things better that lights him up he's really good at that but there's lots of things he's not good at too and just recognizing the world doesn't need a million richard bransons just like it you know it doesn't need a million of me it just needs we needs each of us it needs each of us to really use our own strengths in the best way and whatever that is and so i don't ever kind of cast well you want to run a banking business, it's all about money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what your strength is. That's what you're good at. Then the question is, what do you do with that? Right, but- right. I think that's well said. So let's talk a bit about uh, your new book, You've Got This. I mean, I love this idea. Um, you talk a lot about fear as what well, you have to talk about fear if you talk about courage. And I think you probably talk about fear in every book you've ever written, which makes abundant sense, you know, listening to those naysayers or so-called friends that want to hold you back but just this notion that you know you ha- I think you talk about you've got a lot of the the gifts and the answers within us within you if you don't need listen talk a bit about kind of what some of the core themes in your new book you've got this is yeah well you know the subtitle of the the life-changing power of trusting yourself and I so I really dive into this concept of what is it to trust ourselves and to trust our innate capacity to deal with life, each moment of life as it arrives. And so much of the anxiety people feel, particularly when they're dealing with change and uncertainty and disruption, 
is brought on because we are scared we're not going to have what it takes to deal with what's coming at us. And a lack of trust also keeps us from pursuing the challenges, going after the challenges, starting the business, writing the book, you know, whatever. The lack of self-trust that we're like, I don't know, I have what it takes to do what it is I really want to do. And so there is an act of courage to go to trust yourself and to trust your capacity to handle things and to rise above the challenges and to figure it out, even though right now you're not sure how. And I know for me, even having my fourth child was like, will I, won't I? And I just was really like, Margie, if you didn't let fear that you wouldn't have what it would take get in the way of you having a fourth child, what would you do? I'm like, I would, I would at least be open to the idea of having a fourth child. And so then a year later, we had our fourth child and it was busy. It was crazy. It was bedlam. It was, you know, it was difficult. But each day and each hour and each moment, I've been able to figure out how to raise my four children and pursue my vocation outside of the home as well, um, which was actually often inside the home in those early days anyway. But my point being that a lot of people don't do what they feel called to do because they're afraid they don't have what it takes. And they're afraid that they won't be able to deal with the challenges that they think are coming. Absolutely. It could be uh, listening to the naysayers within you, or maybe the naysayers around, around you is obviously you and I would know and listeners in the US, maybe not. Uh, there's this phrase, tall poppy syndrome, which is basically in Australia, from my perspective, if you want to succeed in any area of life other than sports, you're going to be cut down by your mates and your family and friends. And um, there are other cultures that are a little bit like that. But um, it's easy to have people saying, oh, come on, Margie, really, you want to do this? Or, you know, I don't, I don't really see that. And I've had that in my own life after uh, yeah. the whole Fairfax media thing went under. I, I was not in good shape. I mean, in the 90s, I was pretty uh, despondent, miserable. And I think if people, if you ask people, what do you think Warwick's going to do with his life as well? I don't know, probably not much. There wasn't, so if I'd listened to, and these are well-meaning people, but yeah. sometimes the voices within us and the voices around us, they don't really serve our higher selves, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's true. So one is we've got to manage the internal critic, but we also have to be able to deal with the external critics or even those well-meaning people who just say, oh, you can't do that. And, I, you know, I wrote about that in my book where I really wanted to be a, like a journalist, a TV journalist. And mum was like, oh, but darling, you don't read the paper. And, <laughs> right. you, know, you own the papers, Warwick. And right. we, didn't even, we didn't even get a paper, literally. We got, the, we, we got a weekly paper for farmers and one for Catholics, I think right. it was monthly. And so <laughs> I wasn't, you know, we weren't a family that sat around talking about what was going on in the news. And I, I mean, mum was speaking from the very best of intentions. She just didn't think I was someone who was, was into what was going on in the world enough and I wasn't an avid reader and all that stuff. So I think we've got to be so careful about giving other people's opinions more power than they deserve. Yeah. Yeah. And listen to other people's opinions. Tr just listen to the advice, see what resonates, but in the end, trust yourself. Trust your own inner instinct, that inner sage, that inner voice. It's like, you know what, this does feel right for me, even if someone else is saying, really? And, you know, to me, one of the things I've learned is there's two aspects of that trust. One is trust the inner voice, and you're so right. You know, in uh, Scripture, it talks about that still, small voice, which is really 
talking about the Lord, but in more general sense, there is that quiet voice within you, wherever it comes from, that you need to trust. But also, the way you approach things will be different than others. I mean, you're probably, my guess, is a bit more spontaneous and risk-taking than I am. And that's good. I mean, I think that's great. But it's like, I can't be that person. I'm more, other than when I do billion-dollar takeovers, other than that, I'm normally fairly cautious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so with that one exception. I've never, I've never done one of those myself. <laughs> well, you know, it's okay, you know. <laughs> you can, you, can uh, you don't add that to your uh, Christmas list. It's uh, So we've talked about how you guys are different here at the end. And, and yeah. uh, Margie, I'm going to introduce you to a phrase I use all the time mm-hmm. with Warwick. We got to know when to land the plane, when it's mm-hmm. time to kind of come in for a landing. And we're getting to that point. But I wanted to stress one thing for our listeners that if they were to listen to this from the beginning and just jot the words that came up the most, I think we heard from Warwick significance a lot and we heard from you, Margie, um, courage a lot. And I think that's a great place to end because it seems to me, and, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, both of you, is it really possible to live a life of significance without courage and is courage a noble goal to go after in pursuit of a life of significance? I would say courage isn't the goal, but it would be required at points along the journey. I don't think that every day we have to, we may go, oh, I have to do something bold and brave today. However, I think as we pursue whatever it is that is meaningful and calls to us, there will be moments that we have to take the brave path over the comfortable one. Mm-hmm. And that that will be required on our journey of forging a life of significance. And sometimes that will be easier and sometimes that will be really hard. But I mm. think there'll be many moments in our journey that we have to choose that path of faith over fear and courage over comfort. That's absolutely well said. I'd say to live a life of significance, you have to have courage. You cannot get there without it. Certainly for me, and I've talked about this in earlier podcasts, there'd been inflection points where I was working in some aviation services company doing finance and business analysis. And I started exploring coaching. Well, it took courage to then want to be certified and start coaching. It took courage to want to write a book about something that was so painful that I avoided it for years. But then, gee, Mm -hmm. if it can help other people. So I started that. It took courage to start uh, crucible leadership or even a podcast because I'm basically a reasonably shy, reserved person. So it's like, but you know, you feel called to do something and you'll get the strength. But I guess the bottom line is that inflection points in your life in particular, that's when you need courage the most. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? I mean, is that your experience, Margie? Oh, absolutely. And, and that term inflection points, I think absolutely. They're those moments I was referring to. And we don't know, sometimes we don't know when they're going to come. But there's a part of us that goes, oh, this is hard. This is scary. This is uncomfortable. And I risk falling short here. And it's that moment of choice to go, I will move forward and advance toward this for the sake of something that's bigger than myself and for the Mm. sake of whatever it is that's calling me forward. And that's really probably a good point to maybe wind this up is that um, for me, what motivates me is, you know, courage has to have fuel. And the fuel for me is the why, which I think you talk about. And for me, it's life significance, helping others. It's whatever it is. It's um, if you find the fuel, 
you'll have the courage, or at least you'll have much greater possibility of having the courage. Does that kind of... Yeah. Well, right? and the why, and the why, exactly. which is synonymous with for the sake of what. Exactly. If, to really sit with the question, and for anyone listening to this, to sit with that question, how will I feel a year, five years, 10 years, or in the twilight of my life from now if I don't do this? What am I putting at risk? What am I missing out on? And what, what I, might, might I one day regret if I don't heed that voice, that call to courage? And, and as I you think said in uh, the words of throw, you don't want to live a life of quiet desperation. You don't want to be that to person. And go to the grave with the song still in you. Exactly right. That is a very resonant note to uh, land the plane on. Margie, where can listeners find out more about your book, about you, about your speaking, all of those things? Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, look, the best go-to place is just my website, margiewarrell.com, um, M-A-R-G-I-E, because the way I, I pronounce my name and the way it's spelled for That's American listeners can be different, but I'm sure you'll provide a link. And that is true for Warwick as well. I always tell people, if you want to engage Crucible Leadership on LinkedIn, you go to at Warwick Fairfax, and it's with the silent W in the middle, W-A-R-W-I-C-K, Fairfax. You can find us on LinkedIn. If you want to engage us at Crucible Leadership on Facebook, it's at Crucible Leadership. And you can also visit us on the web at uh, crucibleleadership.com. Warwick, I'm usually the one that says goodbye, but I'm going to let you say goodbye to your good friend, Margie. Margie, it was great spending time with you. Thank you for sharing your insights and work. Take it away. Well, Margie, thanks so much for being here. Uh, your journey of courage is something I've always admired. It's actually been inspirational to me and in my own journey. So, um, yeah, just helping you know women and men have courage to be bold you know you can't preach it enough if you will because you know uh, you might be brave today but tomorrow the voices come back so you know every day you got to wake up again and say okay i got to be courageous again so yeah. thank you for your life's work it's so important so appreciate oh, I'm, I'm just delighted our lives are possible so cross so thank you again it's been an honor